This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 177th edition of the program. Today is Friday, January 25th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which either signed up to support us just this last week or increased their monthly pledge, and that includes Alex Akrush, Donovan Angel Signs, Ralph Dratman, and Travis Goss. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So in today's episode, we'll talk about Bernie's MLK Day speech and share an op-ed from Amber Frost of Chapo Trap House, who makes the case for why the left should unite behind Bernie Sanders. And 2020 presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard responded to my criticism in last week's show. So we'll talk about that and we'll hear from Barry Weiss, who has the stupidest take on Tulsi yet. Also, in 2020 news, Kamala Harris announced that she's running for president and her record as a prosecutor is troubling, to say the least. So we'll look into that along with Joe Biden's sudden change of heart when it comes to his hardline, tough-on-crime stance. We'll also talk about a leaked memo that reveals Trump's intention to traumatize migrant children and discuss the Supreme Court's cowardly decision to let Trump's transgender military ban go into effect. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today. Let's go ahead and get into the program. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Kamala Harris is running for president, and she announced her candidacy in one of the most platitude-driven, thumbpoint-heavy ads I've seen in quite some time. Take a look. Truth, justice, decency, equality, freedom, democracy. These aren't just words. They're the values we as Americans cherish, and they're all on the line now. The future of our country depends on you and millions of others lifting our voices to fight for our American values. That's why I'm running for President of the United States. I'm running to lift those voices, to bring our voices together. So please join me in Oakland on Sunday, January 27th, and go to KamalaHarris.org to join our campaign. Let's do this together. Let's claim our future for ourselves, for our children, and for our country. I'll see you in Oakland. I don't mean to be Captain Obvious here, but there wasn't a single policy proposal in that entire announcement ad. Now, if you're running for president, you'd think that the candidate would want to put that front and center, but nonetheless, there was nothing. And when you go to Kamala Harris's website, you still don't see much policy proposals. In fact, you see none. However, at this stage, she does have a store up. So if you want to purchase a hat or a shirt, you can do that. But with that being said, to be fair, I do like what I've seen from her with regard to the policy proposals she's alluded to supporting. So for example, she supports Medicare for All. She co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. She claims that she wants to legalize marijuana. Now, that's all good, because unlike Hillary Clinton 
and candidates from the 2016 presidential cycle, she's actually listening to what the base wants. She's looking at polls, seeing what's popular, and then she is trying to accommodate what the base wants. But with that being said, is it likely that she's taking all of these progressive policy positions, which she didn't support a couple of years ago, for purposes of political expediency? Yes, it's very likely that that's the case, and we can parse that out in a different video because I do think that individuals like Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Kamala Harris are all trying to be progressive because they want to defeat Bernie Sanders, who is probably their biggest competition going into 2020. But with that being said, I don't want to look at Kamala Harris's policy platform right now. I want to look at Kamala Harris's record and be thorough here because she is someone who is going to be a pretty big candidate going into 2020. She's a force. And I say that because a lot of Hillary Clinton's former support base already seems to be lining up behind her and also she seems to be the media's favorite. So for example, CNN is literally hosting a town hall just for her in Iowa the very first caucus state that tends to make or break candidates. They didn't do this for Bernie back in 2016, but they're doing it for Kamala. So that says a lot. And when you factor in California's decision to move up her home state's primary, presumably to give her an early lead in pledged delegates, in addition to the fact that Clinton's donors already anointed her as the candidate of their choice, I mean, I do think that she does have a chance of winning. So with that being said, is she as bad as Hillary Clinton as a candidate? No, I do think that she's more politically astute. Can she beat Donald Trump? It's possible. I don't think she has as good of a chance as Bernie Sanders. But simply put, I do think she's a serious candidate with a real chance. So with that being said, it is important that we look at her record and we examine what Kamala Harris did as Attorney General. Because she previously characterized herself as a progressive prosecutor. Now, I don't know if you instinctively believe her when she says that, but if, you know, what she did, in your view, has any importance when it comes to the implications of what she'd push for as president, then sure, her record is really important. So what I want to do is take the time to go into her record, her previous record, her own actions, and determine what was and what wasn't progressive. And when you look at Kamala Harris's record in a vacuum, when you put aside electability, when you put aside, you know, her policy platform, when you just look at her record, there's a lot of red flags for progressives that make it very difficult to support her going into 2020. Now, I'm doing this for people who are unsure who to support, because I know a lot of my viewers are supporting Bernie Sanders because he is the furthest left candidate who's the most trustworthy. But for Kamala Harris, there's a lot of people that might instinctively support her for purposes of electability because they think she's progressive because she claims to be a progressive prosecutor. But as Laura Bazelon of the New York Times points out, Kamala Harris was not a progressive prosecutor. And I agree with this because when you look at her record, when you look at her tenure as California's attorney general, well, she has a history of prosecuting the poor, while simultaneously protecting the powerful. Now, you may think that that's not important, that her past record is meaningless, but I think going into 2020, in the event she's elected president, this will give us a sense of how she'd govern, how her policies would look 
on a broader scale, her views on justice on a broader scale. So getting to that article, as Bazelon explains, time after time, when progressives urged her to embrace criminal justice reforms as district attorney and then the state's attorney general, Miss Harris opposed them or stayed silent. Most troubling, Miss Harris fought tooth and nail to uphold wrongful convictions that had been secured through official misconduct that included evidence tampering, false testimony, and suppression of crucial information by prosecutors. Consider her record as San Francisco's district attorney from 2004 to 2011. Ms. Harris was criticized in 2010 for withholding information about a police laboratory technician who had been accused of intentionally sabotaging her work and stealing drugs from the lab after a memo surfaced showing that Ms. Harris deputies knew about the technician's wrongdoing and recent conviction but failed to alert defense lawyers. A judge condemned Ms. Harris's indifference to the systemic violation of the defendant's constitutional rights. Miss Harris contested the ruling by arguing that the judge, whose husband was a defense attorney and had spoken publicly about the importance of disclosing evidence, had a conflict of interest. Miss Harris lost. More than 600 cases handled by the corrupt technician were dismissed. Miss Harris also championed state legislation under which parents whose children were found to be habitually truant in elementary school could be prosecuted despite concerns that would disproportionately affect low-income people of color. Ms. Harris was simply regressive as the state's attorney general. When a federal judge in Orange County ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional in 2014, Ms. Harris appealed. In a public statement, she made the bizarre argument that the decision undermines important protections that our courts provide to defendants. The approximately 740 men and women awaiting execution in California might disagree. Now, I just want to pause right there because when she refers to herself as a progressive prosecutor it's clear that that was not the case her record as a prosecutor has historically been conservative and regressive as Bazelon points out but it's not just that she wasn't progressive it's that her record was bereft of morality and she took positions that were conservative. It gets worse from here. So, for example, when it comes to the legalization of recreational marijuana, she was asked about whether or not she'd support this in 2014 because she had a challenger who did support it. And she made it very clear that her position on marijuana was that legalization of it was laughable, literally. Your opponent, okay. Ron Gold, has said that he is for the legalization of marijuana recreationally. Your thoughts on that? Um, I, that he's entitled to his opinion. <laughs> yeah. Now understand that in America, it's basically already the case that marijuana is legal for white Americans. Because even if it's the case that whites and blacks smoke marijuana at comparable rates, well, it's mostly black Americans, people of color, who are prosecuted and punished for it. Now, as a prosecutor, you'd think she'd be cognizant of this fact, but she wasn't back then. Now, you might say, well, that was her previous stance. She supports the legalization of marijuana now, Mike, so what's the problem? And I hear you, but she only came around to it in 2018, last year, long past the time when other people in the Democratic Party had already jumped on board with legalization. Now, additionally, when you look at other policy issues... Knowing that we are now in the era of Black Lives Matter, as Brianna Greyjoy 
points out in an, in an Intercept article recently, you'd think that as a, quote, progressive prosecutor, she'd be extremely concerned with state-sanctioned violence and extrajudicial killing of black Americans. And maybe she was, but the policies that she supported, or more specifically, the policies she opposed, are contradictory to the cause of Black Lives Matter. So, for example, in 2014, she tried to block the release of nonviolent second strike offenders because prisons would lose free labor. Stop and think about that. Prisons were overcrowding, so they decided, well, why don't we release second strike nonviolent offenders? Kamala Harris said, no, we shouldn't do that because prisons would lose out on free labor. So she essentially defended modern day slavery. Also, in 2015, she opposed a bill that required her office to investigate police shootings and didn't support body cameras on police. Now, has her position since changed? It may very well be the case. But as a prosecutor, she was against this. And it's not just like she was against issues that affected people of color, you know, and the Black Lives Matter movement specifically, because in 2015, she opposed a transgender inmate's plea for gender confirmation surgery. If you're a prisoner, sorry, you can't have gender confirmation surgery. That's just not something that a progressive prosecutor, a quote progressive prosecutor would do. In fact, I'd argue that it's immoral. Now, there's one case in particular that really speaks to the immorality of Kamala Harris as a prosecutor. And this is a case involving a man named George Gage in California. So he was an electrician with no criminal record and he was accused of sexually abusing his stepdaughter. Now, the reason why he was ultimately convicted was because of his stepdaughter's testimony. However, after he was convicted, the judge learned that the prosecutor broke the law and intentionally withheld evidence that would have cleared his name, including medical reports that proved she lied, including the fact that her own mother described her as a pathological liar. So obviously, when you're wrongfully convicted and it's proven that you were wrongfully convicted, you appeal the case. Well, what did Kamala Harris do once this case was appealed? Well, when it reached the Court of Appeals, Kamala Harris chose to defend the conviction and essentially argued that it was his fault that he was wrongfully convicted because he didn't point out the evidence that was being withheld. Now, understand that this man was an electrician. He was no legal expert, and he was representing himself during this case, and he didn't have his own attorney. Now, what the judges did was send this case to mediation, and at that point, You'd expect that this would lead to just Kamala Harris choosing to dismiss the case altogether since it's going to mediation. It's kind of their cue to back down. And at that point, everyone already knew that he was in fact wrongfully convicted. The question, rather, was does this man deserve to serve out a 70-year sentence? All based on a technicality because he didn't know that he was supposed to bring up the fact that the prosecutor was intentionally withholding evidence? Really, does he deserve to uh, serve 70 years because of that? Well, Kamala Harris thought so, and she chose to not back down, and since she refused to budge, this man, who was proven to be wrongfully convicted, is still in prison till this very day because of Kamala Harris. She alone ruined his life. Why? Uh, because of a technicality. 70 years. Now, 
it gets even worse than there because that case is not an outlier. Ms. Harris also fought to keep Daniel Larson in prison on a 28-year-to-life sentence for possession of a concealed weapon even though his trial lawyer was incompetent and there was compelling evidence of his innocence. Relying on a technicality again, Ms. Harris argued that Larson failed to raise his legal arguments in a timely fashion. This time, she lost. She also defended Johnny Baca's conviction for murder even though judges found a prosecutor presented false testimony at the trial. She relented only after a video of the oral argument received national attention and embarrassed her office. And then there's Kevin Cooper, the death row inmate whose trial was infected by racism and corruption. He sought advanced DNA testing to prove his innocence, but Miss Harris opposed it. After the New York Times expose of the case went viral, she reversed her position. All this is a shame because the state's top prosecutor has the power and the imperative to seek justice. In cases of tainted convictions, that means conceding error and overturning them. Rather than fulfilling that obligation, Miss Harris turned legal technicalities into weapons so she could cement injustices. Now, that's just a few anecdotes, but stepping back and looking at the bigger picture, seeing the broad impact Kamala Harris had, well, as Hannah Georges of The Atlantic explains, under District Attorney Kamala Harris, the overall felony conviction rate in San Francisco rose from 52% in 2003 to 67% in 2006, the highest seen in a decade. Many of the convictions accounting for that increase stemmed from drug-related prosecutions, which also soared from 56% in 2003 to 74% in 2006. Now, on top of all of these injustices, there's also a component of hypocrisy that needs to be examined. Because in her book that she recently released, she literally talks about how, quote, America has a deep and dark history of people using the power of the prosecutor as an instrument of injustice. And she talks about how she saw firsthand how prosecutors would actually hide evidence that would have exonerated defendants. So that's what she talked about in her book, all while conveniently not mentioning the fact that she did these things that she denounced in her book. Now, to be fair to Kamala, it wasn't as if the totality of her record was bad, that she was a regressive prosecutor 100% of the time because she did do things that did help people. As Attorney General of California, she required officers to undergo implicit bias training, and she also created a program that let first-time nonviolent offenders have their charges dismissed if they completed vocational training. And this is all really positive things that probably had a positive impact on thousands of lives, but that doesn't erase the suffering she chose to inflict on people as a prosecutor. And when you juxtapose her treatment of the poor with the way she handled crimes committed by the rich and the powerful, well, the picture gets even worse. And it gets a lot worse. Because you'd think that if she's this tough-on-crime prosecutor, then she's going to treat the poor and the powerful the same, right? There's not going to be two standards of justice. She's not going to lay out this two-tiered approach to justice just because someone's powerful, right? Well, unfortunately, not necessarily. Because when Steve Mnuchin, current Treasury Secretary for Donald Trump's administration, repeatedly broke the law in California while he ran One West Bank and illegally foreclosed on residents and violated waiting period statutes, Kamala's response was 
troubling to say the least. Now, this was determined to be the case that they were breaking the law repeatedly after a year-long investigation concluded that there were more than 1,000 instances of legal violations from One West Bank and it recommended that then-Attorney General Kamala Harris take action against this bank. Now, when you look at how aggressive she was at prosecuting just normal Americans, including people who were wrongfully convicted, proven to be wrongfully convicted, She's going to be especially hard on this elite Steve Mnuchin who's running One West Bank that's illegally foreclosing on residents in California, right? Well, actually, no. After it was recommended that her office take action, Kamala Harris inexplicably chose to not take action, to do nothing. She chose not to prosecute One West Bank and Steve Mnuchin. Now, why would this be the case? If you're tough on crime, then you're going to be tough on crime everywhere. You're going to treat the poor the same way you're going to treat the powerful. And if the powerful break the laws, you're going to hold them to the same standard as the poor. So what's going on here? And when she was asked why she chose not to prosecute Steve Mnuchin, she just said, well, it's a decision that my office made. But wait, that doesn't make any sense. You prosecuted hundreds, if not thousands of other individuals for a possibly doing less, but when it's determined that Steve Mnuchin and One West Bank committed more than a thousand legal violations, you're just going to randomly choose to give them a pass when your whole career you've been pretty tough on crime? This doesn't make sense. Something's not adding up. And her explanation of, oh, well, it's just something we decided to do, doesn't suffice because you need to tell us why, what's your reasoning why would you do this? Well, there's a very specific reason as to why she chose not to prosecute Steve Mnuchin. And this is where her record takes a really dark and nefarious turn. Kamala Harris received a campaign contribution of $2,000 from Steve Mnuchin. But before that, in 2011, Mnuchin's wife at the time gave her multiple campaign contributions, nearly $9,000 worth, and in 2010, One West Bank contributed 6500 to Kamala Harris's attorney general campaign. In other words, she was bought off. That's why she chose to not prosecute Steve Mnuchin, who then went on to become treasury secretary. This is corruption. Now, it may not be a direct quid pro quo. Maybe there wasn't this agreement that, hey... I'm going to give you money and in turn, don't ever prosecute me, but certainly in contributing to Kamala Harris's campaigns multiple times, what Steve Mnuchin, as the head of One West Bank was doing, was trying to curry favor with the California Attorney General. Because in the event their crimes do get exposed, well, maybe she'd go easy on them. And that's exactly what she did. So while Kamala Harris was aggressive in prosecuting people, one of which, after it was proven that he was wrongfully convicted, she chose to give Steve Mnuchin a pass. 
And maybe the response will be, well, look, maybe this was just a coincidence. Maybe this was a one-off. Maybe this doesn't speak to the broader approach she takes to prosecuting the powerful. Maybe she did prosecute other people who were powerful. Maybe that's the case. But there was another individual named Robert Murray whose defense she came to. And this is someone who was a state prosecutor. And she came to his defense after, quote, he falsified a defendant's confession that was used to threaten a sentence of life in prison. So now it's the case that while she runs for president, she's going to try to frame her record as her being a progressive prosecutor. And you have to be nuanced here. You have to understand that she could point to dozens of examples of wonderful things that she did. And, you know, it's it's not as if 100% of her record is bad, but certainly there are very troubling instances of her being a regressive prosecutor that she doesn't really want to talk about, conveniently so. So while she tries to convince you that she is a progressive prosecutor, she needs to explain why she acted like a dirty cop in numerous instances throughout her career as a prosecutor. Now let's go back to her ad. What were the platitudes that she was espousing at the beginning of that ad? Truth, justice, decency, equality, freedom, democracy. Yeah, those are all principles that the left believes in, but the problem is that we have reason to believe that Kamala Harris didn't put those principles into practice while she was a prosecutor. Now, I want to end this video by sharing a tweet from an activist from the Bay Area who said this when he learned that Kamala Harris announced her candidacy for the presidency. Kamala Harris made her career by locking up black people in the Bay Area. Her track record consists of terrorizing black communities through the prison industrial complex. She then became the top cop of California. Her track record consists of rampant anti-blackness. And as someone who knows better than anyone about her record... That's a devastating thing to say about Kamala Harris. So let's step back and uh, put this all in context. We're looking at her record. We're not looking at her future platform. We're looking at her record because perhaps there's information in there that will tell us how she's going to govern as president of the United States. And if she governs in a way that's even remotely similar to how she acted as a prosecutor, then as Gion Journal puts it, we can expect progress for the rich and prosecution for the poor because this is chains you can believe in. Yeah, and unfortunately, this is something that is not going to go away. It's something that she needs to address and tell us why she chose to do the things that she did? Why did she choose to prosecute Gage after it was determined that he was wrongfully convicted? Why did she defend the use of slave labor in prisons? These are all things that, in my view, don't make you a progressive prosecutor. It's antithetical to progressivism, and if she wants to truly prove to us that she's progressive, then she needs to put out a detailed and thorough account as to why she did what she did when she was a prosecutor. Now, you can say that that's all in the past, and her new record as a progressive is better, and that's fine, but understand that I do think that this information about her past is important. You can disagree with that or not, but we have to look at these candidates and vet them and determine who's the best. And with a record like that, I don't know how anyone can support Kamala Harris if they are truly on the left because there is someone with a consistent record. 
being on the right side of history. And that person is Bernie Sanders, not Kamala Harris. In 2016, Joe Biden was asked whether or not he regretted supporting the 1994 crime bill, which led to mass incarceration, primarily of people of color, and he made it very clear that he did not regret supporting the crime bill. In fact, he defended the crime bill in 2016. Another thing about how uh, perspectives change over time. Bobby Rush, member of Congress, said the other day, I'm ashamed that I voted for the 94 crime bill. You ashamed of that bill? Not at all. Um, and in fact, I drafted the bill, as you remember. I know that. There are things I would change. I opposed, for example, the carjacking provision that the administration right. wanted in. I but, so, but by and large, what it really did, it restored American cities. So to still defend the crime bill in 2016, after he saw how Hillary Clinton was taking a lot of flack for supporting the crime bill, he still defended the crime bill. And if you know anything about Joe Biden, that's not necessarily too surprising because he's been consistently tough on crime throughout the entirety of his career. Now, a video from 1989 of Joe Biden recently resurfaced, and he took a stance that's so tough on crime that he outflanked then-Republican President George H.W. Bush from the right and wanted him to be even more tough on crime and was critical of George H.W. Bush because he wasn't tough enough on crime. So let's hear what he said back then, and then, then it's going to make sense as to why Joe Biden still defended the crime bill up until 2016. I think the president has to join us in making a significantly greater commitment to these six areas to stem the rising tide of violence in America. And that's what it is, violence. First, we have to join together to ensure that drug dealers are punished swiftly, surely, and severely. In line with what the president is calling for, we have to hold every drug user accountable. Because if there were no, uh, no drug users, there would be no appetite for drugs and there would be no market for them. Let's take a look at what the real problem is. It's not just how many people are using drugs. As the president said, the number of people using drugs, cocaine in particular, is down in our country. That's true. But the violence associated with drugs is spewing out all over America. And that's terrible. I know it's hard to believe, but this very day, violent drug offenders will commit more than 100,000 crimes on this day alone. And the sad part is that we have, we have no more police in the streets of our major cities than we had 10 years ago. And what the president proposes won't help much. What he proposes is no increase over what the Congress has already approved last year. In a nutshell, the president's plan doesn't include enough police officers to catch the violent thugs, not enough prosecutors to convict them, not enough judges to sentence them, and not enough prison cells to put them away for a long time. That's why right now, six out of every 10 criminals who are arrested on drug charges have their cases dropped. That's why we think the president should triple, triple the commitment that he's made tonight for police, prosecutors, and judges for our cities and our states. We disagree with the president's decision to cut back on our previous commitment to protect against the drugs coming across the border, to cut the Customs Service, the Coast Guard, and the Border Patrol. We think we should do more to stem the flow of drugs across our borders, and we think we should go one step further. Let's go after the drug lords where they live. 
with an international strike force. There must be no safe haven for these narco-terrorists, and they must know it. Yikes. So, so to give you the context here, that was a Democrat outflanking the Republican president from his right, advocating for a war on drugs that's comparable to what we now see when it comes to the war on terror, an international war on drugs. That's what he advocated for. So when it comes to being tough on crime, it's clear nobody was tougher on crime than Joe Biden. But fast forward to 2019, and here's what he's saying now about his former tough on crime stance. Quote, I haven't always been right on criminal justice. You don't say. <laughs> I mean, what a convenient time to have such an epiphany, Joe. You're totally saying this because you had this genuine evolution and, you know, you're not taking this stance for purposes of political expediency now, are you, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think it's clear that his formerly tough-on-crime position is unpalatable to some people on the left and if you actually want to have a chance of making it through a democratic party primary you've got to adapt and you've got to reflect the current democratic party base maybe back then in 1989 that was acceptable to the left but in 2019 joe biden is at least politically astute enough to know that if he wants to even have a chance he can continue with this tough-on-crime position that's a proven failure. The crime bill is a failure. Now, he's going to address his stance towards criminal justice and his former tough-on-crime position, but he's not going to directly say anything about the crime bill. So, here's what he says now. As CNN's Arlette Sines explains, former Vice President Joe Biden said in remarks at a Martin Luther King Jr. breakfast Monday that he has made mistakes when it comes to criminal justice issues, an area of his career that could be scrutinized if he launches a 2020 presidential bid in a competitive democratic field. You know, I've been fighting in this fight for a long time. It goes not just to voting rights, it goes to the criminal justice system, Biden said at the National Action Network's Martin Luther King Jr. breakfast in Washington. I haven't always been right. I know we haven't always gotten things right, but I've always tried. Biden made no mention of his support for a 1994 crime bill that set strict sentencing standards and critics have argued led to an era of mass incarceration, but he highlighted his later work with President Barack Obama to address the sentencing disparity for crack versus powder cocaine. It was a big mistake when it was made, he said. We thought we were told by the experts that crack you never go back. It was somehow fundamentally different. It's not different, but it's trapped an entire generation. The former vice president also argued that white Americans must acknowledge systemic racism still exists. There's something we have to admit, not you. We, white America, has to admit there's still a systematic racism and it goes almost unnoticed by so many of us, he said. Biden's speech, made on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, before a group founded by the Reverend Al Sharpton, serves as a possible overture to black voters as he mulls a 2020 presidential run. So, I mean, I'll give him credit where it's due. You can't talk about the problem and address the problem of mass incarceration unless you admit that there's a problem in the first place. And certainly, if you were 
someone who was instrumental in creating that problem, you have to admit culpability. And what this was here was an admission of guilt to a degree. Not perfect by any means, but certainly he's admitting that conveniently in 2019, he's suddenly realizing that, you know, maybe he wasn't always right when it comes to crime, criminal justice, and his previous stances with regard to the 1994 crime bill. So understand that we're going to see a lot of Democrats suddenly evolve on things that aren't going to help them going into 2020. If you didn't support Medicare for All in 2016, then you sure the fuck do now. If you didn't renounce the 1994 crime bill in 2016, you sure the fuck do now. Meanwhile, though, Bernie Sanders doesn't really have to renounce anything because he's had the same policy positions for decades. So, I mean, to me... It doesn't even make sense why there's a debate. If you are on the left, there's no question about who the leftist candidate is. It's Bernie Sanders. He didn't have to evolve on Medicare for All. He talked about this for decades. He didn't have to evolve on the crime bill. He's talked about this for decades. So as we see, a bunch of politicians running in 2020 have this sudden evolution and their personal feelings about the crime bill and Medicare for All, understand this. There's one candidate in this race that has been consistent for the totality of his career. Now, I don't think you're going to find anyone else with more foresight than that. And heading into the post-Trump era, which I hope will come to fruition in January of 2021, we need someone who is not going to get us into another mess that down the road leads to an even bigger clown than Donald Trump. And really, I'm not confident that anyone else can do that besides Bernie Sanders, because even the best candidates like Elizabeth Warren, who I consider to be top three in this race, alongside Bernie and Tulsi Gabbard, Elizabeth Warren was a Republican in 1995. Now, I, I trust her, right? I believe she's on the left, but Bernie Sanders is the one person who has been entrenched in leftist politics. So during the Democratic Party primary, if you're a leftist, it doesn't make sense to me how you can opt for anyone but Bernie when knowing how all of these candidates are struggling to match his leftism and progressivism in 2020. But this just goes to show you that even people like Joe Biden know that they have to match Bernie and match others in the race if they want to be palatable to the left. And it's good overall. I'm glad that they're changing, even if it may be disingenuous, but it does show one thing about progressives. It's that we, as a whole, are getting that Overton window to shift back to the left. It's not happening quickly, right? We're making very uh, marginal progress, if you will. But certainly, when you listen to the rhetoric espoused, by even establishment Democrats, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, when it comes to healthcare, education. That effect is what I like to call the Bernie Sanders effect. It's the effect of progressives having so-called purity tests and not taking any bullshit from the Democratic Party and demanding that you have to represent us. So, um, yeah, I'll leave that there. Certainly, this is it's good that Joe Biden, you know, isn't still trying to defend the atrocious crime bill, which which was a catastrophe, which led to mass incarceration and exploded the prison population. I mean, certainly, that's a positive step in the right direction, even if it may be disingenuous, but let's hear what he has to say about private prisons. Are you going to call for a ban on private prisons, Joe? Are you going to take money from them? 
I think you need to go further. This is just a really small step in the right direction, but we all know that Joe Biden, we can't expect too much from him because he is the worst candidate in the field in 2020. I don't think you're going to get a more conservative Democrat during the 2020 Democratic Party primary than Joe Biden. So, um, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. But certainly, he knows that his tough on crime stance is coming back to bite him in the ass. And it's not the only part of his record that will be called into question. He has other things to answer for. And uh, Anita Hill is certainly one of them. Once Tulsi Gabbard announced that she was running for president, pretty much the entirety of her record was combed through and put on display and she received a lot of criticism, not just from individuals within the neoliberal center left, but from the progressive left as well. Now, looking at all of these critiques, I actually released a video titled, Are Criticisms of Tulsi Gabbard's Record Fair? And in this video, I went through all of the new revelations about her record, and I distinguished between the criticisms that I found fair and the ones that I thought were illegitimate and frankly, nothing more than disingenuous smear attempts. Now, for a good portion of that video, I was critical of her past on LGBTQ rights, because even if I applauded her for her pro-LGBTQ voting record, I still took issue with the fact that, according to an Aussie article where they interviewed Tulsi, her personal views haven't changed. Now, to me, that was something that I found hurtful, because I don't want you to just begrudgingly go along with pro-LGBTQ rights and co-sponsor LGBTQ equality legislation because that's what you think is expected of you as a Democrat. I want you to want to fight for us. So I took issue with that and I was critical of the fact that her personal views haven't evolved to match her voting record. And to be fair, that wasn't my only criticism of Tulsi Gabbard's record. I also criticized her stance on torture, her association with Modi and BJP, along with her vote against Syrian and Iraqi refugees, but for the most part, I paid a lot of attention to her anti-gay past, and as a result, she released a video apologizing again for her past stance and statements on LGBTQ rights, and her campaign also reached out to me in order to clarify her position. So, I'm going to show you the video that she released in its entirety, and then I'm going to tell you about her campaign reaching out to me and what they said and my thoughts on that. In my past, I said and believed things that were wrong. And worse, they were very hurtful to people in the LGBTQ community and to their loved ones. Many years ago, I apologized for my words and more importantly, for the negative impact that they had. I sincerely repeat my apology today. I'm deeply sorry for having said them. My views have changed significantly since then, and my record in Congress over the last six years reflects what is in my heart, a strong and ongoing commitment to fighting for LGBTQ rights. Now, I know that LGBTQ people still struggle. They're still facing discrimination, still facing abuse, and still fear that hard-won rights are gonna be taken away by people who hold views like I used to. That cannot happen because every American deserves to be treated equally by their fellow Americans and under the law. I will continue to fight for LGBTQ people, whether they're in school, serving in uniform, trying to get health care, taking care of their family, or looking for a home. Now, I grew up knowing that every person is a child of God and equally loved by God. And I've always believed in 
the fundamental rights and equality of all people. But I also grew up in a socially conservative household where I was raised to believe that marriage should only be between a man and a woman. So for a period of my life, I didn't see the contradiction in those beliefs. While many Americans may be able to relate to growing up in a conservative home, my story's a little different because my father was very outspoken. He was an activist who was fighting against gay rights and marriage equality in Hawaii. And at that time, I forcefully defended him and his cause. But over the years, as I grew up, I formed my own opinions based on my life experiences that significantly changed my views at a very personal level in truly having aloha, love for all people and making sure that every American, regardless of sexual orientation, is treated equally under the law. I look forward to being able to share more of my story and my experiences growing up, not as an excuse, but in the hopes that it may inspire others to truly live aloha, to love and care for others. When we deny LGBT people the basic rights that exist for every American, we're denying their humanity, denying that they are equal. And we're also creating a dangerous environment that breeds discrimination and violence. Because when we divide people based on who they are or who they love, all we're doing is adding fuel to the flames that perpetuate bigotry and hatred. Now, I'm so grateful to my friends, my loved ones, both gay and straight, who have patiently helped me see how my past positions on these issues were at odds with my values, my aloha, and that they were causing people harm. I regret the role that I played in causing such pain, and I remain committed to fighting for LGBT equality. I really appreciated that, and even if she already apologized in 2012, I do feel as if that video was necessary. Not necessarily because I felt like she needs to constantly apologize, because, I mean, I accept the apology that she issued in 2012. But what was important about that video is, quote, My record in Congress over the last six years reflects what's in my heart, a strong and ongoing commitment to fighting for LGBTQ rights. And she also said, again, her views changed at a very personal level. So this is a positive step that she took to clarify her position. Now, I'd like to hear more about how her personal stance has in fact changed. But when it comes to that now infamous sentence in the Aussie article, I was told by a member of Tulsi's team that the article doesn't make it clear that she was specifically referring to her personal views on abortion rights, not homosexuality. Now, in theory, that should make me feel better, right? Because it, it gets to the crux of my main criticism of her stance on LGBTQ rights. But with that being said, I made it clear, and I said this to Tulsi's team, that the problem is that Tulsi had multiple opportunities to make her personal stance 
known to clarify, but she passed up those opportunities. For example, when the Hawaii LGBTQ caucus declined to endorse her, citing the Aussie article and what was said about her personal views specifically, well, when she issued a statement, she didn't address her personal stance then. She simply said that she co-sponsored numerous LGBTQ bills. She could have made it clear that her personal views did change, but she didn't. So there are people who are rightfully wondering whether or not this is just political posturing. This is something that Lauren Steiner brought up when I was on her podcast recently. But with that being said, the video that she released is clearly an attempt to clarify that. But I think that really hashing out why she personally has evolved is important. But I am pleased to announce that after Tulsi's team reached out to me, we had a really long, lengthy conversation, and I came away feeling a little bit more confident that Tulsi is going to try to fight for us. And we agreed that it's really important for, for Tulsi Gabbard to come on the program. So we are currently in talks to bring her on the Humanist Report so we can talk about her personal stance on LGBTQ rights, but also address the other criticisms because that wasn't my only criticism, even though, you know, um, that's what's being focused on. I also want to know about her connection to Modi. I want to know about why she voted against Syrian refugees. I want to know if, if she's still feeling conflicted about torture. So I think that not you know, running away from these criticisms and addressing them head-on is something that she needs to do, and her team seemed more than willing to come on the program and discuss everything. Let me ask whatever I want to. So, again, to reiterate, the video she released is a positive step towards clarifying her position, her personal feelings and LGBTQ rights, and she addressed the crux of my issue. I just want to hear more. Simple as that. And I would like to know what her current stances are on a lot of these positions that I took issue with in that video. And it seems as if they're aware of these criticisms and they acknowledge that these could be problems that do in fact need to be addressed. So understand that for a politician to listen to criticism from someone in the independent media, I mean, that that's really huge, right? So that's valuable in and of itself. But I do want to challenge her, not because I don't like Tulsi, and let me address this as well, because there are a lot of people that gave me some pushback, but understand, let me make something very clear here. I wasn't critical of Tulsi Gabbard because I have a nefarious pro-Bernie agenda. Even if I am supportive of Bernie Sanders, my goal was to criticize Tulsi in a way that's objective. Because if we try to sweep all of these negative aspects about her record under under the rug, then that's going to make her a weaker candidate. We can't pretend as if these criticisms don't exist in the same way that the neoliberals in 2016 tried to pretend as if all of the issues we had with Hillary Clinton simply were nonsensical. Now, of course, that's not to say that Tulsi Gabbard is anything like Hillary Clinton. I'm just saying that we need to be consistent in holding all politicians to the fire. And my goal is not to break down Tulsi Gabbard. My goal is to build up Tulsi Gabbard. Because understand, I have no interest in crushing Tulsi at the behest of Bernie. If Tulsi Gabbard wins the nomination, it very well may be the case that Bernie is her VP. Or if Bernie wins the nomination, she could be his VP. So these are individuals that I see as allies. And by criticizing them, we are making them stronger. And if you're going to criticize them, if you're going to hash out these things, and if you want answers to questions that may be lingering about the records, now is the time to do it. The election is two years away. Now is the time to do it. Not a single primary will take place until about a year from now. So if you have questions and you want answers about their record, 
Don't sit on it and pretend as if everything is peachy keen. No candidate is perfect. No candidate, including Bernie Sanders. So my goal here and trying to be objective and fair in looking at which criticisms of Tulsi I agreed with and disagreed with, my goal was simply objectivity and that's it. So I will leave that there. I hope that I can give you an update soon as to when Tulsi will come on the show, but I'm definitely looking forward to it. And um, understand that I, I like Tulsi Gabbard. I just want her to address these things. And if she does address these things, I think it'll make her a stronger candidate. It'll give us something to point to when other people might find out about Tulsi and then uh, have questions about these things. So, um, yeah. New York Times writer Barry Weiss recently appeared on an episode of Joe Rogan's podcast and they were having a discussion about the 2020 presidential election and expectedly, she said things that were completely moronic. They were talking about, you know, the strategy, who can beat Donald Trump, and she, of course, said, well, you know, Democrats can't have a progressive run against Trump, otherwise they're going to lose. They need a centrist who can get those mythical moderate voters, so they shouldn't replicate the Republicans' strategy in running to, you know, the right, instead go to the left. They should have someone who is a centrist, someone who's pragmatic. Yeah. She also coined the phrase intellectual dark web, just for those of you who don't know that, but for the most part, they were having this discussion. She had nothing of value to contribute to the conversation, but they started listing off various candidates, perhaps as a means to go through them and their qualifications. And when Tulsi Gabbard came up, she decided to randomly attack Tulsi Gabbard for the dumbest reasons possible. And when pressed on them, she was incapable of defending her positions. I mean, she completely face-planted. So, We'll take a look at what she had to say, and then I'll tell you why. This is the stupidest take on Tulsi Gabbard yet. But okay, so who's in right now? So we have Kamala, Kristen Tulsi Gillibrand. Gabbard. Oh, monstrous. Monstrous? <laughs> ideas. Ideas. Well, when she was 22, she had... No, she's an Assad toady. What does that mean? She is What's a... What's a toady? I think that I used that word correctly. Jamie, can you check what toady means? Like toeing the line? Is that what it means? No, I think it's like a... T-O-A-D-I-E. What does that mean? I think it means what I think it means. Uh, toady. Definition of toadies. A person a who flatters yeah. or defers to others for self-serving right. reasons. A sycophant. So she's an Assad sycophant. My, Is that what you're saying? My, yeah, that's proof. That's known about her. Like what did she say that, that oh, we have qualifies to look, her? I don't, I don't remember the details. I probably a, should say that before we say that about her. We should probably read it, rather. Well, I have read it. No, I mean, I we just, should write oh, it now. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just so we know what she said. Look I, up I've Tulsi had her on Gabbard. Before, look up I really Tul enjoy talking to her. I like her a lot. Are you serious? Yeah, I like talking to her. Okay. I like okay. talking to her. I don't know about... I think she's like the mother load of bad ideas. Whoa. I'm pretty positive about that, especially on Assad. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. Well, my take on her was that I think as a person who's coming from the left, who's also a veteran and uh, is very articulate and sensible and a woman, and in talking to her, we didn't get into Assad or any of those things, but talking to her about what she feels is wrong with the current administration and the way things are running and a direction she thinks things could go in. She had some very promising ideas. I don't, I didn't know about this. But doesn't though. she also, did she ever apologize for believing in conversion therapy? For I didn't even know she believed in conversion therapy. Am I crazy?
Yes, nobody takes you seriously on the left, Barry. This is a microcosm of Barry Weiss in general, because if you read her, you know, opinion pieces in the New York Times, praising people from the so-called intellectual dark web, if you view her segments on, uh, or her appearances rather on Bill Maher, where she defends Israeli atrocities against Palestinians, this is someone who just always has a bad take. And it's not like she is coming from a place of, you know, well-researched intellectual curiosity. She says things that she can't even defend. You saw it. So she said that Tulsi Gabbard is an Assad toady, and she called her an Assad sycophant. She actually went there. And then Joe Rogan said, what did she say that qualifies her as an Assad sycophant? Barry's response? I don't remember the details. Oh, <laughs> I mean, if you're going to call her an Assad sycophant, which is a huge claim, then maybe have at least one example you can cite, one anecdote that demonstrates why you think this is the case, but she couldn't. She said it and then face planted immediately. She also said she's the mother load of bad ideas. And then she hesitantly adds, I'm pretty positive about that, especially about Assad, but maybe I'm wrong. So in other words, you just hate Tulsi Gabbard because that's your feelings. You don't even have the facts in your mind. You can't even pin down the reasonings as to why you don't like Tulsi Gabbard, but yet you hate her. Can't say why you hate her, but you just hate her because that's the establishment narrative and that's what you're going to go with. I mean, come on, you have to do better than that. She also said, did she ever apologize for believing in conversion therapy? And the answer to that is yes, in 2012 and again, just last week, Tulsi Gabbard released a video where she apologized for her past LGBTQ stances. But here's the thing, Barry, if you're going to white knight for us and claim to care about LGBTQ rights, maybe understand the crux of our criticism in the first place. We weren't asking for an apology from Tulsi Gabbard. We were asking for clarification with regard to her personal stance on homosexuality. If you don't even know the most basic details when it comes to the reasons you're opposed to her, maybe, just maybe, you shouldn't attack her. And when her name came up, she had this visceral reaction, like, oh, Tulsi, ugh. I don't like her, she's horrible. I don't know why. Uh, I guess she's uh, an Assad apologist. I can't tell you why, so please don't press me any further on this issue, but she's an Assad apologist, and I don't like her, and it's popular for people in the establishment to not like her, and since I want to be, you know, in that DC bubble and part of the establishment, I have to do what they're all doing and hate her. Except, you're not explaining why you think she is an Assad apologist. You're not explaining why you think she's the motherload of bad ideas, which I don't even know what the fuck that means. I think that's something that Sam Harris said, you know, a couple of years ago. I mean, do you even understand why you dislike her position on Assad? She went to Syria for purposes of peace because she wanted to actually talk to the Syrian people in order to see what they want, not what the United States want, not what the military industrial complex wants. And even if Assad may be an objectively 
horrible person, even if she knows he's a brutal dictator because she called him a brutal dictator. Still, that doesn't mean that we should overthrow him because what happened the last time we just overthrew a brutal dictator, Saddam Hussein? Well, that created a vacuum that led to the rise of ISIS. If we do that again, we can see another group that's comparable to ISIS rise up in Syria. So you don't even know why you're opposed to her. You don't even know why you disagree with her stance on Syria because you don't know what her stance on Syria is, Barry. Your goal is to punch left always. And anytime you have the opportunity to do so, and it's why we don't trust you or respect you, Barry. Shame on you, because if you're going to have these extraordinary claims to make about Tulsi Gabbard, at least come with a reason. But you can't even cite a single reason. You've face-planted multiple times in that clip. I mean, what a joke. You're supposed to be a journalist. You're supposed to know these things like the back of your hand. But you, you can't even describe even just superficial reasons as to why you think Tulsi is an Assad apologist. What a joke. This is what I like to call an illegitimate criticism of Tulsi Gabbard. It's nothing more than a smear attempt because for whatever reason, Barry Weiss just doesn't like Tulsi. Bernie Sanders was invited to speak at an MLK Day event by the NAACP, and he gave a speech on MLK that is really important and i think that really everyone needs to see it because his words here are very powerful and i think it demonstrates that bernie sanders is really honing his skills as an order when it comes to delivering a message that is progressive that demonstrates his understanding of both social and racial justice as well as economic justice so here's his speech it's relatively long but i would encourage you to if you don't want to sit through his speech during this segment. I'll link to his full speech in the description box. I'd actually encourage you to go there first before watching this because watching it in its entirety really gives you the full perspective. But nonetheless, here's a clip of his speech. It gives me no pleasure to tell you that we now have a president of the United States who is a racist. We have a president of the United States who has done something that no other president in modern history has done. What a president is supposed to do is to bring us together. And we have a president intentionally, purposely, is trying to divide us up by the color of our skin, by our gender, by the country we came from, by our religion. Racial equality must be central to combating economic equality if we are going to create a government that works for all of us and not just the 1%. Racism is alive when the United States Supreme Court and Republican governors make it harder for people of color to vote and when they suppress the vote. And that is why I believe we need a constitutional, Amer a constitutional amendment to guarantee every American the right to vote <coughs> and that we enact automatic voter registration. Racism is alive and well when we have a broken criminal justice system and we have more people in jail than any other country on earth. 
We need in this country real criminal justice reform, and that means we need jobs and education for our young people, not more jails and incarceration. It means ending the cash bail system, which puts people in jail for the crime of being poor. It means ending the so-called war on drugs, which has caused so much pain and destruction in this country. It means ending private prisons. It means, when we talk about criminal justice reform, understanding that we need police reform and that lethal force is the last resort, not the first. Now, in 1963, a few years ago, when I was a college student, I had the honor of being in Washington, D.C. to hear Dr. King's speech, the I Have a Dream speech. And along with hundreds of thousands of other Americans who were there that day, we were there to demand an end to racism and to support Dr. King's call for economic justice. Because let us never forget that the title of that march was Jobs and Freedom. Jobs and Freedom. And I find it remarkable that 56 years after that march, many of the demands that Dr. King and others made are still demands that we have got to fight for today. Dr. King, in my view, was one of the great leaders, not only in American history, but in modern world history. He was a man of unbelievable courage, who understood not only that we have got to end racism, but that we need economic justice. Remember where he was when he died. He was in Memphis, Tennessee, standing with exploited sanitation workers who were struggling for decent wages. Think of the work he was doing at the end of his life. What he was organizing was a poor people's march. Remember that? And what he said is, we are going to bring together black workers and Latino workers and white workers and Native American workers. And we are going to change the national priorities of this country so that in this country, justice rings out for all, that every American, regardless of the color of his skin, regardless of whether he or she is rich or poor, can have the quality of life that all human beings deserve. So today we are here not just to remember Dr. King, not just to honor Dr. King. We are here to fill his revolutionary spirit, to have the courage to take on the economic and political establishment, and to create the kind of nation we know we can become. Thank you all very much. This speech gave me chills because I really 
am feeling more confident in Bernie's ability to communicate a message that is all-encompassing. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, before when he talked about Medicare for All, when he talked to, about tuition-free public colleges and universities, what was the main smear that the establishment tried to perpetuate with regard to Bernie Sanders? They'd say, well, he's talking about you know, policies that exclusively service the white working class in particular, not black working class Americans or Latino working class Americans. He's trying to reach out to the white working class. Now, we all know that that's bogus, but what he's saying here, and he goes into this in greater detail in the full clip, he makes it clear that all of his policies would in fact benefit all members of the working class, regardless of race, gender identity, sex, all members of the working class would benefit from his policies. And he actually went into really explicit examples. So for example, he talked about healthcare disparities between blacks and whites and how Medicare for all would help to close that divide. But also he talked about the importance of seeking criminal justice reform because this is something that is needed and we're talking about real comprehensive criminal justice reform because it is leading to disproportionately black and brown Americans being locked up at a greater rate than whites. And he cited very specific policies, ending cash bail, ending the drug war. So understand that what I see here from Bernie is the willingness to listen to criticisms, even if those criticisms from the establishment are hacky, but he's honing his skills a lot more. He's making it clear that no, this is not an agenda that is tailored to the white working class. Stop disaggregating the working class. It's just the working class. And all of his platform, the totality of his policies, would benefit all members of the working class of all colors. So stop trying to disaggregate the policies he's talking about. Now, he then talked about MLK's legacy and how we're still having to fight for the vision of America that MLK wanted. And he ended his speech by saying that we need to make MLK's vision a reality. And I think that that's important and it resonated with me because what he's communicating, indirectly so, is that the struggle for equality and justice, it's ongoing. And it's not like what Bernie Sanders and the new progressive left are pushing for is new. We've been fighting for justice. We've been on the right side of history. So by linking what we're doing now to MLK and really linking it to all of the civil rights and economic battles of our country's history, Bernie Sanders is trying to put his movement and what he's about in perspective and let people know that it's an ongoing struggle. Politics is inherently about struggle. It's about people with power versus people without power. And it's never going to change. But the point is that we continue that struggle and we continue to right the wrongs of our country. So I really like what he said here because as he gears up to run for president, it's clear that he is going to do everything in his power to bring together all of the working class, create a multicultural coalition of working class individuals from across the country, of all demographics, to make sure that together we have class consciousness and there's solidarity among all of us working class people of all colors and genders. And we know what's at stake and what we have to fight. So this is a message that is really nice to hear because it's 
not divisive, you know, contrary to what you see on mainstream media from Donald Trump and whatnot, but it's something that needs to be said. Now, he also started off that speech by calling Donald Trump a racist, and that's what got a lot of the headlines, but I don't really understand why that got headlines, because I don't think it's very controversial to state the fact that Donald Trump is racist, because, I mean, anyone who says that that's debatable at this point is just being disingenuous, or they don't want to know the truth, so I don't even think that that's controversial or newsworthy. What matters here about his speech is what people aren't talking about, and that's the substance, and that's the very inclusive message of class sol solidarity among all of the working class, and he's really starting to understand the way to craft a message that makes that more clear, and at this point, I really hope that he announces soon because everyone else is already starting to hit the ground running. Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard. And I think that what he is saying here shows again that he just, he gets it. So Bernie, announce because we need you to start fighting now so we can start fighting for you because we believe in what you're saying and we believe in the policies you're promoting. If you're on the progressive left, I don't even think it's debatable to assert that Bernie Sanders is the best candidate. He's the furthest left, he's a real social democrat, and he's someone who actually could bring about a real political revolution, a Reagan-esque revolution where we shift the Overton window back to the left and we actually implement policies that would help out the working class. Now, as we weigh out different candidates and who's the best and who's worse and who has the best record and who has the best shot at defeating Donald Trump, Amber Frost of my favorite political podcast, Chapel Trap House, she penned an op-ed for The Baffler where she did a phenomenal job of putting everything into perspective. Basically, the argument is that we are at a time where we're going to look back at this moment now and we're going to realize that we had the chance to really make change, but this is going to be the moment, make no mistake about it, where we're going to see that our country either did or didn't take bold action to bring about real change. And really, I think the overarching message is, do you want to be part of that movement? Do you want to look back at this moment now and think, I did everything I could to get Bernie Sanders elected? Win or lose, we did everything to bring about positive change. And that's what this article is about. Amber starts off the article talking about how three years ago she attended a draft Warren rally, which she described as painfully nerdy. And look, at this time, we all wanted Warren to run and challenge Hillary Clinton because, I mean, she's to the left of Hillary Clinton and there was really nobody else who could bring about social democracy or even anything that is close to social democracy besides Elizabeth Warren. Nobody expected Bernie Sanders to run. But what Amber says here is that at the end of the day, Elizabeth Warren is no Bernie Sanders. She's an incrementalist. In 2013, when the fight for 15 was starting to gain prominence, Elizabeth Warren proposed an increase that was only $10 an hour, and not just $10 an hour that year, gradually, over multiple years. She proposed a gradual solution to dealing with student loan debt. She never really talks about unions, and while she's focused on the criminality of Wall Street, which is good, she rarely talks about issues like Medicare for All and education. In other words, we all tried to convince ourselves that Elizabeth Warren was something that she wasn't. She describes herself 
as a capitalist to her core, something along those those lines. So the question is, now that we got what we wanted, I guess, where Elizabeth Warren is running, why not back Elizabeth Warren? And simply put, as Amber says it, because it's Bernie, bitch. Now here's what she goes on to argue. It was true then and it's true now. Bernie Sanders is the best candidate, the only candidate who can be considered anything even close to a socialist and the one to beat Trump. A President Sanders isn't some idealist fantasy. He is our best bet by a mile. He has consistently polled as the most popular politician in America since the primaries, and while everyone else has been tweeting or following up with 23andMe, Bernie pressured Amazon into raising wages, followed up by going after Walmart, condemned Saudi Arabia, and sponsored the resolution to end support for the war in Yemen, introduced the No Money Bail Act, committed to a federal job guarantee, campaigned so powerfully for Medicare for All that he shifted the entire Democratic Party and saved a woman from being hit by a car. Not only is he the best candidate politically, as in the only social democrat, he has the best chance of giving the pragmatists what they say they want, a presidential win. Unfortunately, a few of my media colleagues appear to have caught the Warren bug yet again, but this time around, she lacks the good sense to refuse to run. Elizabeth Warren's politics aren't impressive, and they never have been. All she has ever leaned on is a rigid obsession with the sort of basic financial regulation that barely mitigates capitalism's greatest crimes. She's not charismatic and appears to have absolutely zero understanding of what voters want in a candidate, as indicated by her pre-campaign soft launch on a bit of specious family lore about Native American heritage. Literally no one cares, and yet she keeps doubling down on it, and that's because she's weak. She chokes. She flinches. She reacts every time Trump insults her, and thus, the public is far more familiar with her defensive orange man is mean to me ethnic delusion than they are her accountable capitalism act. Really inspiring name there, Liz. Warren, who didn't stop voting Republican until 1995, said in 2011, I was a publican because I thought that those were the people who best supported markets. I think this is not true anymore. Again, displaying her tone-deaf penchant for doubling down when the situation desperately calls for changing the subject, she explained further, I was a Republican at a time when I felt like there was a problem that the markets were under a lot more strain. It worried me whether or not the government played too activist a role. Then, she declined to say whether she voted for Ronald Reagan. There's no reason to believe that a goody-goody technocrat would fare better in 2020 than fellow neoliberal loser Hillary Clinton did in the prior presidential cycle. So understand that her criticism of Elizabeth Warren is harsh. Um, <laughs> so harsh that I don't even know that I would fully agree with everything she said, but the point that she's making, the overarching argument is that Elizabeth Warren is not the savior we wanted her to be. Elizabeth Warren can't be anything other than Elizabeth Warren. And when given the choice between Warren and Trump, there's no question about it. I would support Elizabeth Warren. But we need to understand that if we truly want what the left has been vying for, which is a social democracy on par with the countries we see, in Scandinavia, then Elizabeth Warren is not the person that's going to bring about that level of change. It's just a fact. She's not going to do that, and I want her to prove me wrong if she's elected, and I'll be rooting for her to prove me wrong. But at the end of the day, we have someone 
who's the real deal, who has said the same thing throughout the entirety of his life. And that individual is Bernie Sanders. Now, when it comes to the other candidates, Amber continues saying Barack Obama was the very last horoscope candidate, a politician who managed to speak so vaguely that his platform could mean anything to anyone. It's not going to work this time around. The Democratic Party is not going to be able to trick people into believing that Liz Warren is a social Democrat. Ditto Kamala Cop Harris, a woman whose duplicitous record as a prosecutor includes the defense of the death penalty, three strikes laws, and the imprisonment of single mothers for the truancy of their children. You really think you can convince anyone that Kamala Harris is a woman of the people? Sherrod Brown has gone all in with Russiagate hysteria. Also, he signs his tweets. And before you even think of it, don't bother with Beto, who is to the right of all of the aforementioned and votes to the right of the median Democrat. His district is majority Democratic, so he could plausibly vote to storm the Winter Palace and still keep his seat, but he joined the New Democrat Coalition in order to advance business interests. You can't astroturf any shitty neoliberal hack into the hearts and minds of the Bernie voter. If you could, we'd have President Hillary right now. But as for the liberal media, and for those who would disingenuously invoke identity politics to attack the socialist, just remember the magic words. I know what you're doing right now and it doesn't work on me. Remember, they're trying to trip you up, wear you down, and waste your precious time. Luckily, they're utter clowns, elite whiners who pout that everyone is being too mean to them and to their favorite milk toast candidate. The hit pieces against Bernie have already started to pour in, and we cannot concede a single inch to bad faith liberals. Steal yourselves against the pseudo-progressive manipulation tactics and moral blackmail that put you on the back foot. Partisan isn't a dirty word. It's nice out here on the right side of history, and if you keep sitting on that fence, you're going to get splinters in your ass. So hop aboard the Bernie train. We got ourselves a winner. It's Bernie, bitch, and it's the only game in town. And regardless of the smear campaign that the establishment is already launching against Bernie Sanders, regardless of all of the counterfeit progressives who are trying to pretend to be as progressive as Bernie Sanders. This is the point in a lot of our lives where, when we're going to look back and we're going to realize that this was the opportunity, the one opportunity perhaps that our generation got to truly make a difference, to truly bring about change. And for that reason, the left should unite behind Bernie Sanders. Because he's our only chance at social democracy, and really he's our best bet at beating Donald Trump. So the overarching takeaway from this article here is really great. I, I think it it's good to have these types of analyses where somebody puts it all into perspective. Because when you're in the midst of battle and you know you're trading blows with corporate Democrats and exchanging insults on Twitter, it's hard to step back and look at the bigger picture. And it's easy to get demoralized when you see all of the hatred and smears lobbed against Bernie Sanders. But understand that when you step back and when you look back at this moment, it's going to be clear that those fighting for Bernie Sanders are fighting for justice, racial justice, social justice, and we're fighting to make sure that future generations actually have a fighting chance. And if there's going to be a political revolution in this country that's on par with the Reagan revolution, then we need it to be someone 
who's dedicated to moving the Overton window, who's actually a social democrat. And simply put, there's nobody else in that race that can do this. It's Bernie Sanders. I want to talk about a story that's not necessarily the most surprising story ever, albeit it's still extremely chilling because it really speaks to just how morally bankrupt Donald Trump is and how low he's willing to go in order to accomplish the goals he has, the anti-immigrant xenophobic goals that he has. Now, as Jessica Corbett of Common Dreams reports, following reports on Thursday that federal officials forcibly separated thousands more migrant children from their families than previously reported, Senator Jeff Merkley released a document to NBC News revealing the Trump administration intended to traumatize children and intentionally create a humanitarian crisis at the border. The December 2017 draft memo, which Merkley shared with NBC News after receiving it from a government whistleblower, shows that Trump administration officials wanted to deport children more quickly by denying them asylum hearings after taking them away from their parents. It appears that they wanted to have it both ways, to separate children from their parents, but deny them the full protections generally awarded to unaccompanied children, concluded ACLU attorney Lee Gerland, who led a class action lawsuit on behalf of migrant parents. The leaked document, as NBC reports, also shows officials wanted to specifically target parents in migrant families for increased prosecutions, contradicting the administration's previous statements. In June, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nelson said that the administration did not have a policy of separating families at the border, but was simply enforcing existing law. Now, when I initially talked about Donald Trump's family separation policy, this was something that I alluded to. Our history of immigration policy stemming back to uh, the Bush administration has been deterrence. Deterrence by basically being as cruel as possible to send a message to anyone else who might think about trying to cross the border or apply for asylum. Don't come here. We don't want you. And if you do come, um, this is what you can expect. Cruelty. And, you know, what Trump did is basically the logical conclusion of years of really disgusting xenophobic immigration policies, again, stemming from Bush, but also being done by Obama. He had the alien transfer exit program where they take Mexican men, drop them off just somewhere randomly in Mexico, sometimes thousands of miles from their home, which put them in danger. And he did this as a means of deterrent. So when I talked about this story in 2018, my point that I made, one of the points that I really stressed was that the reason why Donald Trump is going the extra mile to be as cruel as possible is so that way he can deter others from entering the country. However, cruelty as a means of deterrence, it just doesn't work because these are individuals who are often fleeing violence. They're seeking asylum because if they stay, they could be killed. So separating them from their family, even though that's harsh, it's still preferable to dying. So that's why cruelty as a deterrent doesn't work. But nonetheless, that's what Donald Trump opted for. He separated families. Now, another reason why this story is so important is because at the time, 
Trump's administration insisted that there is no family separation policy on the books. They don't have a direct policy that mandates family be uh, families be separated. They're simply prosecuting anyone who crosses the border illegally, and that will indirectly lead to families being separated. But it proves that they lied. They did have a family separation policy, and the goal was to separate families in order to traumatize the children. Here's what Jeff Merkley had to say. Well, what these documents show, Chris, is that there was extensive planning to implement a strategy of criminalizing families crossing the border. At the same time, the administration said it's all about criminals. Uh, they were plotting to stop families from arriving. And they said not only are we going to criminalize that, we're going to separate the kids from the parents. Now, many of us will remember that the Homeland Security Secretary said there is no such thing as a family separation policy or a child separation policy. But this document says exactly the opposite. I want to I want to be clear about this because it drove me absolutely nuts covering this story. Time and time again, the White House and Kirsten Nielsen got up and said, you are out of your mind. No policy exists. And what you're saying is this document is literally a policy document in which one of the policies they contemplate and ultimately implement is child separation. Yes, the very first uh, policy on that list of uh, the document uh, is the one of criminalizing crossing the border. And the, the second is to separate children from their parents. And so it's all laid out here. It's a discussion. This document represents a discussion taking place between the attorney general's office and the Homeland Security office at the highest levels. Uh, so this is very much the roadmap so is being laid out for what was later done. The administration was absolutely lying to the American people when they said there was no such plan. So did Kirsten Nielsen lie? Yes. So he's 100% correct here. They lied. They said, oh, well, you know, we don't have a family separation policy. That's not our goal. It's just an indirect consequence of, you know, this zero tolerance policy that we're choosing to implement. They lied. This memo leaked by a whistleblower proves that the goal was to traumatize children to construct a xenophobic immigration policy so cruel it traumatizes them so that way other migrants who might want to come to the country think well i don't want my child to be traumatized so i guess we should probably stay but again that's such a simplified way to view the world because when given the choice between certain death in some cases or having your family separated which would you opt for as a human being, as a rationally self-interested human being? Which would you opt for? You would opt to live, albeit in bad conditions, but you'd stub your life nonetheless. So this really speaks to the moral bankruptcy of Donald Trump and his administration. This isn't too surprising, but it's still chilling to see the details that are in this memo that describe how the goal was to traumatize children, specifically target children, the weakest human beings that need to be protected by adults. They targeted them for their own political aims. And that is fucking morally reprehensible. Shame on Donald Trump. This is utterly indefensible. And if anyone is going to try to defend this, then... I don't even know what to say. You just don't have morals and you should admit that if you defend something like this. When it comes to Donald Trump's bigoted and transphobic ban on transgender Americans serving in the military, 
he has a short-term victory because our spineless Supreme Court decided to allow it to go into effect. And as Arian DeVogue and Zachary Cohen of CNN reports, in an unsigned 5-4 order, the justices took no stance on the legality of the ban first proposed in a surprise tweet by Trump in 2017, but Tuesday's action clears the way for it to take effect while lower courts hear additional arguments. The four liberal justices objected to allowing the administration's policy banning most transgender people from serving in the military to go into effect. The policy, first announced by the president in July 2017 via Twitter and later officially released by then-Secretary of Defense James Mattis in 2018, blocks individuals who have been diagnosed with a condition known as gender dysphoria from serving with limited exceptions. It also specifies that individuals without the condition can serve, but only if they do so according to the sex they were assigned at birth. In a statement released after the Supreme Court action, the Pentagon sought to clarify that its policy is not a ban on all transgender persons from the military. As always, we treat all transgender persons with respect and dignity. The Department of Defense's proposed policy is not a ban on service by transgender persons. It is critical that DOD be permitted to implement personnel policies that it determines are necessary to ensure the most lethal and combat effective fighting force in the world. DOD's proposed policy is based on professional military judgment and will ensure that the U.S. armed forces remain the most lethal and combat effective fighting force in the world, Lieutenant Carla Gleason, a Pentagon spokesperson, told CNN. In July 2017, Trump surprised military leaders by tweeting after consultation with my generals and military experts, please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military, Trump said. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. Now, if that justification that Trump used to announce this ban on transgender individuals serving in the military sounds familiar about them possibly being a, quote, disruption, it's because it is familiar. It's the exact argument used to justify the discriminatory ban on gays and lesbians serving openly in the military. And here we're just applying it to uh, transgender people. And understand what they're doing. With the Muslim ban, now all of a sudden we're supposed to call it a travel ban and pretend as if Donald Trump never said that he wants a complete shutdown of Muslims entering and exiting the country. We're supposed to pretend that he never said that. And similarly here, we're supposed to pretend that he never said that he wants to disallow transgender Americans from serving in the military because the Pentagon wants you to think, oh, this isn't a ban on transgender people. It's just that we want to be able to make personnel decisions. Oh, okay. That sounds kind of... Dum, 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 dum. So this is bigoted. And this is an abdication of the Supreme Court's responsibility to just administer the fucking Constitution. Because this is obviously illegal. It's unconstitutional because it violates the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. And they know that. The five conservative justices know that. But the reason why they are choosing to not take a stand here is because they can't possibly say that this is constitutional and defend this as, as constitutional when it's not because it would make the court seem illegitimate so what they're doing is simply taking no stance and letting this continue but in taking no stance understand that they are taking a stance 
They're saying that even if this is unconstitutional, we will allow it to continue. We're just cowards and don't want to put our names on it. But you did. So the Supreme Court has no legitimacy already. Whatever legitimacy they concer concerns they had that led to them not wanting to take a stand on this, I mean, you don't even have to worry about that. You have no fucking legitimacy. If you're not protecting marginalized communities who are susceptible to discrimination and violence, then you are not a legitimate court. So to allow this to continue, to take no stance, and essentially allow this to go into effect while lower courts gauge whether or not this is constitutional, it's not, the Supreme Court is abdicating its responsibility. And this is disgusting. Donald Trump is a bigot. He's a transphobe. Now, on the campaign trail, when it comes to the issue of trans rights, he actually seemed to be the most reasonable. He got attacked by Ted Cruz for saying, look, this trans bathroom hysteria is just kind of overblown. Just let them use the bathrooms that they want to use. He said this. But now what does he do when he gets in the office? He is banning transgender people from serving openly in the military. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it's not a transgender ban. They can still serve if they have gender dysphoria, but are still living as the sex that they were assigned at their birth. Wow. Are they not merciful? I mean, this is just shameful. You know, we're going backwards. Progress, it, it doesn't seem to be on a straightforward trajectory as we all would have hoped. It's circular. You make progress, you go backwards, you fight to keep it, and then you go backwards. It's just, it's circular. So this is incredibly disheartening, and I feel really bad for transgender people who have to put up with this non-stop bombardment from the right of transphobia. The bathroom hysteria, they make up the bathroom predator myth. You have individuals like Jordan Peterson basically launching a career off of trans hysteria by misrepresenting laws that protect trans people. You have people like Steven Crowder trying to create caricatures of trans people. And it's disgusting. The right is bigoted. Once, you know, trans people become more accepted by uh, society and by culture in the United States, they'll have a new target. Immigrants. It's just, it's, it's going to keep repeating itself. The right... They don't have any policy substance, so what they do is they pick a new target. They choose one group, demonize them and vilify them, and they prop them up as a boogeyman so that way their idiotic base is able to think, oh, well, this must be the person who's causing all of my problems. This must be why we have so much economic issues in this country. It's not because of the oligarchs. It's not because of capitalism. It's because of trans people and immigrants and gay people. It's just intellectually dishonest and quite frankly it's bigoted and grotesque so this is a win for bigotry for now but long term we will win this battle trans people will win this battle and i i believe that but right now we have to deal with this because we have a transphobic bigoted xenophobe racist in the white house and um this is just what comes with that well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in if you've made it this far in the show. As usual, we can't end without thanking all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors and giving a special shout out to all of our iTunes and SoundCloud listeners. Thank you all so much for watching the show. I will see you next week. I'm Mike Figueredo. This is The Humanist Report. Take care.